Amen. If you have a Bible, go with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2 and verse 11. We'll be there in just a second. Judges is the seventh book of the Bible, so right near the beginning. Uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to start a series through the book of Judges, but just so you know, we're not going to be able to go verse by verse through the entire book. We're going to kind of do a shortened summer series on the book. And so what we'll do is uh, every few weeks we'll do a QA and uh, a to uh, let you ask questions that come up that we're not able to address in the book of Judges. And so we'll do that every few weeks, but we're going to kind of do a a flyover, a 30,000 foot flyover of the book of Judges. We'll be in Judges chapter 2, verse 11 here in just a second. So when I was, when I was a kid, one of my favorite trilogies, uh, movie trilogies, was the Back to the Future uh, movies. And in Back to the Future 3, there's this really funny scene near the end of the movie where Doc Brown, the, the scientist who's invented time travel, is sitting in a saloon in the Old West and uh, he's not drinking, he's just, he's just holding his, his glass there. And he's telling all of the people there in the saloon in the 1800s about what the future is going to be like. And he says, in the future, you don't run or walk any, you know, to get somewhere. We're going to have motorized carriages called automobiles that just carry you where you uh, want to go. And so one of the guys who's in there and says, like, these automo, what's it, you know, do people ever walk or run anymore? And, and Doc says, well, of course people walk and run, but they run for fun, for recreation. And the guy responds, run for fun? What kind of fun is that, you know, to, to run somewhere? And, uh, you know, I kind, of, I kind of agree with him. Like, running is not fun. You know, when I was a kid, I thought it was fun. But here's one of the things about running. Like, I don't know if you ever thought about this. Every single time that you run... You don't actually go anywhere, you end up in the same place that you started, right? I mean, every single time that you run, you have to end up back where you started. So if you're running on a track, you're running in circles. If you're running on a treadmill, you're literally not going anywhere. Uh, and so running is, is in, in some ways, is pointless in terms of it's not advancing you, it's not helping you get anywhere different from where you are right now. And that's why uh, people use this phrase. We've entitled this series Running in Circles because that's, a, that's a, a, a phrase that people use to talk about life. The fact that we uh, are kind of spinning our wheels and we're, we're active, but we're not necessarily productive. We're, we're running in circles. We're ending up in the same place over and over again. I know so many people uh, that like when you think about your life, your parents or just uh, you just think about your life, it, you feel like you're running in circles, right? It's, the, it's kind of the same routine every single day. Uh, and your life is kind of the same. You're in a, you feel like you're in a rut and you feel like it's just kind of the same uh, every single day. If you're a, a mom, you feel like my, my day is, I get up, make sure everybody gets where they need to go, make sure they get back home, and then I wake up the next morning and I do the exact same thing. And so you're, you're constantly running in circles and you're not, you don't feel like you're ever doing anything different or you're ever getting anywhere, but you're just kind of just repeating those patterns over and over again. And the same thing is true spiritually, that oftentimes when it comes to our spiritual walk with the Lord, we can, we can run in circles and we can kind of 
fall into these patterns where the same thing happens over and over again. We're, we, we try really hard to walk with Jesus. We try really hard to be obedient to Jesus and to be faithful to Jesus. There are times when we fall short and we trip up and we stumble and then we feel bad about that and we say we're sorry to the Lord and we try again and we start working really hard and we try to be faithful and we try to be obedient and then we stumble and then we say we're sorry and we just kind of repeat that cycle over and over again and we're running in circles. And that's not just... That's not just true for Christians. I remember years ago when I was uh, in a, on a mission trip in the Muslim world, I was talking to a guy, a uh, 20-year-old guy named Apo, and Apo was a kickboxer. That's what, he, that's what he did for a living. He was this aspiring kickboxer. And when I, when I sat with him, we were going through a park uh, area in the city that we were ministering in, and he was sitting at a table and, and was eating a snack and said, would you guys want to join me? And we're like, yes. And we, so we joined him and talked to me. He said, you know, I, I try to be a good Muslim. I try to... Um, I try to fast when I'm supposed to fast. I try to pray five times a day. I try to go to the mosque on Friday. I'm, I'm really trying to be a good Muslim, but I just keep failing. I keep doing things I'm not supposed to do, and I keep doing things that disappoint uh, God, and, and then I, I'm, I feel bad about it, and I try hard again, and then I, I slip up, and, I, and it's just this cycle that I'm going through over and over again where I'm trying really hard, but I mess up, and then I try hard again. And he said to me, he said, it really feels like Satan is tormenting me, that, that he's, he's uh, oppressing me and tormenting me. And that's really, again, even though he's a Muslim and he's not, he's not uh, following uh, the truth, that's really not all that different from experience that Christians feel, where Paul says in Romans chapter 7, you know, uh, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I, I do want to do, I'm, I'm, I'm falling short and I'm not doing them. And so we, we feel like we're in this, this rat race and this cycle that we can't get out of. And this often happens, I, I can, can't tell you how many times this has happened for me as a, as a pastor as I'm counseling people who will mess up in some way in their walk with the Lord. They'll get into a jam and then they'll come back to the Lord to get them out of that jam. And then once he does, then they go back to the same pattern of life that they were living before, get back into another jam, come back to the Lord, ask him to get them out of the jam, and then they repeat the cycle over and over and over again. And it's like, you know, when, when things go bad in life and when we experience brokenness, we go to the Lord and we ask him for forgiveness or we ask him to get us out of the jam and he does and then when things go back to normal when things go back to good we forget the Lord and we go back into the same patterns that we were in before and that's exactly what we see happening in the life of the nation of Israel in the book of Judges they will get into a jam they'll remember the Lord and they'll ask for him to deliver them and he does and he's gracious to them and he's kind to them and they get out of the jam and then they go back into the same pattern over and over again. And so like Israel, we need to be saved from this religious cycle of effort, falling short, suffering the consequences, saying we're sorry, being delivered and then going back through the pattern over and over and over again. And so the question I want to asked tonight and, and answer from the book of Judges, how can we stop running in circles and how can we make actual spiritual progress? Like how can we advance in our relationship with the Lord? How can we make actual spiritual progress? That's what we're going to see here in the book of Judges. So Judges chapter 2, 
verse 11. We're going to read down through verse 19 in preparation for our study. If you would, please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. This is God's word. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's what we're going to see tonight really is kind of an overview of the entire book of Judges. And, and here's what we're going to see in this passage, in this book. Judges points us to Jesus, who is the only one who can save us from running in circles. Judges points us to Jesus, who is the only one who can save us from running in circles. The passage I just read is kind of a an introduction to the book, or it's kind of like a movie trailer for the book. It's, it's previewing what's going to happen, and it's giving you a guide for how to read the book and understand it. Okay, this is, this is the author of Judges, inspired by the Spirit, telling us exactly what this book is about and exactly how to understand this book. And here's what he's, he's sharing with us. After God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, okay, what we see happening in the movie The Ten Commandments or in The Prince of Egypt, the cartoon The Prince of Egypt, uh, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God rescues them out of slavery, brings them through the wilderness, and then brings them to the land that he promised them. And then he uses Joshua to take the people into the promised land of Canaan and to conquer the people that are there in Canaan and to remove them from the land and to give the land as an inheritance to the nation of Israel. But here's what happens. In the book of Joshua, God sends Joshua and his armies into the land of Canaan and they win the victory, okay? They, they, they gain their foothold in the land, but the, the conquest is gonna need to take place in two stages, it's kind of like this. When I was a, a, a teenager, I was in high school, there was a movie that came out. There's been a sequel since, but when I was, a, when I was a, a, a teenager, there was a movie that came out with Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum called Independence Day, okay? And the, the whole movie, what that movie was about was there was this alien race that was coming to Earth and they wanted to wipe out 
all of the humans on earth and, and, and take over our natural resources. And they were superior technologically and in terms of military and all those kind of things. But the humans learned how to uh, defeat the mothership, which was protecting all the little ships, the thousands of little ships of aliens that were attacking humans. And so they took down the mothership and they won the victory. And that was the end of the movie. But there were thousands of these tiny, like little ships, they still needed to mop up. They still needed to, to do the work to defeat all the, the, the aliens that were remaining, but they had won the victory. They had taken down the, the big, the kind of big task, so to speak. And that's exactly what we see in the book of, of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, God leads Joshua and the people of, of Israel into the promised land. They win the victory. They start taking the, the land that God had promised to his people, but they still have all of these little armies and little peoples that they need to deal with and they need to defeat and they need to drive out of the land at the end of the book. And the problem is that they do not obey in doing the mop-up duty. They don't they don't drive out the remaining peoples once they have inherited the land. In fact, they, they let them remain. And then you see this in chapter one. We have time to read all of it. But in chapter one, there's, there's multiple instances where the author of Judges is explaining to us the people did not do what God had asked them to do. So for example, the people of Judah didn't drive out some of the Canaanites because they had iron chariots. And so because these Canaanites had uh, more sophisticated military weapons and uh, tools at their disposal. Even though God said in the book of Joshua, you can defeat iron chariots. I'm with you. You don't need to be afraid of them. They say, nope, we can't do that. And they pull back and they let those people stay. And then in chapter one, you see eight times the author uses the phrase, they did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. So they didn't drive out the people of the land that they were called to drive out. And then four times you see the phrase, and this, this helps us understand that the people of Israel actually did have the power to do so and that God was with them. It says that they didn't drive them out, but they drove them into forced labor. So the people that were there in Canaan, instead of casting them out and destroying them the way that God had told them to, they let those people remain and they used them for their own economic advantage. And so they basically put them in slavery to serve them and give them economic advantage, but they didn't do what God had asked them to do. In fact, when God had given his instructions to the people of Israel, when he told them to go into the promised land and drive out everybody, he gave specific instructions. And it wasn't just like, it wasn't just like, you know, people from England coming over and driving out the Indians, okay? It was, it was God said, listen, here's what I want you to do. The reason why I'm asking you to go into the land and to destroy all of the inhabitants of the land is because they are idolaters. They are worshiping false gods, and I want you to destroy them. I want you to tear down their shrines. I want you to tear down their temples. I want you to smash their idols to bits because I only want the worship of me to take place in the land. And if you don't do that, what's gonna end up happening is you're gonna worship the idols that they're worshiping and you're gonna end up serving the gods, the false gods that they're serving and it's gonna end up being a mess for you. And that's exactly what we see happening in the book of Judges. In fact, the problem is that we see early in chapter two is that the people of Israel fail to transmit the faith from generation to generation. 
the author of Judges tells us there's a, there's a generation that comes after Joshua's generation that does not know the Lord, that does not remember the saving works of the Lord. And so they've not passed down the faith generation after generation. And what that leads to is this cycle that we see in the book of Judges that we just read about uh, in chapter two, which is kind of the, again, the introduction and the trailer to the book. And so here's the cycle. You'll see a, a picture of this on the screen, but the, the cycle of the book of Judges is that the people of God sin by committing idolatry that results in the judgment of God where they are enslaved to foreign powers. They then repent and cry out to God for mercy and he delivers them through a judge. And then when the judge dies, they repeat the cycle over and over again. So when the judge dies, they sin and commit idolatry. God judges them by them being enslaved to a foreign power. They cry out to God in repentance. He delivers them through a judge. The judge dies and they repeat the cycle over and over again. That's what happens throughout the entire book. And that's what the author of Judges is saying. Look, this is how you understand the book. This is how you understand what's happening in the book. And so he tells us there in verse 11 that the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is an important phrase, okay? The, the, the phrase that, that doing evil and in the eyes of the Lord is something that comes up again and again in the book of Judges. In fact, one of the key verses in the book of Judges that's repeated over and over and over again is that there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. So instead of doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, they did what was right in their own eyes and that's evil in the eyes of of the Lord because there's no king, there's no one who's leading them to do what is right before the Lord and so they're doing what they feel like is right and what they want to do. And there's two specific things that we see happening here in the introduction to the book of Judges that they're doing. One is cultural compromise and the second is idolatry. Cultural compromise and idolatry. The problem for the people of God, and this is true in the Old Testament and this is also true for us as the New Testament church. This has been said by other preachers before, but the church of God, the people of God, are too often a thermometer that's registering the temperature of the culture rather than a thermostat that's influencing the temperature of the culture. And so too often we as the people of God are allowing the culture to influence us rather than us influencing the culture the way that we are supposed to influence the culture. This can work in all kinds of ways. One of the ways classically that the church and historically the church has kind of fought against is adopting the practices of the culture. And that's true when it comes to uh, romance or money or family life or all those different things that, that fundamentalists and those who say, well, look, we want to be separate from the world. We want to be separate from those around us. We want to be different from those around us. And so we say, we don't want to adopt their practices. Okay. And that's one of the things the church has historically said. And honestly, we're not really good at it. Okay. One, one preacher said, we are, uh, as a church, we're slower than the culture at adopting their practices, but we eventually do. We eventually adopt the culture's practices when it comes to money. We eventually adopt the culture's practices when it comes to marriage and divorce. We eventually adopt the culture's practices when it comes to all kinds of things, and, and, and we're seeing this happen now in the church. 
But not only that, not only do we eventually adopt the practices of the culture, one of the sad things that I'm seeing right now in the church is that we, we're, even when we're acting like we're different, we're adopting the methods of the culture. And so one of the things that, like right now, we've talked about this before, that's huge in American culture is, is cancel culture. When somebody gets out of line with, with whatever the worldly orthodoxy is right now, uh, when it comes to marriage or gender or any of these things, race, all these things, when you get out of line with the orthodoxy, you're canceled and you're judged and you're condemned and you're cast out. And the church does the exact same thing. We just, we just do it for different things. And so we try to cancel out culture and we try to do all these boycotts and we just say, hey, listen, we're not going to do that. And we, we fight the world with the weapons of the world rather than the spiritual weapons of the gospel that God has called us to influence the world with. And so often we compromise with the culture. We are a thermometer rather than being the thermostat that's influencing the culture with grace and with truth. Not only that, but idolatry is something that God's people adopt. And that's what we see here in Judges and that we see in our own lives. God had said to his people, you blot out, you destroy all of the people there in Canaan and all of their idols. Do not tolerate their false gods. He said, if you do, then they're going to entrap you. You are going to be enslaved to them. And the people of Israel did not destroy the idols. And they started to worship, as he said, we read there earlier, they worshiped the Baals, who were, the Baal was, a, uh, was seen as the storm god and a, a god of, who would bring the rain. Then the Ashtaroth, who were this, this fertility goddess who would make sure that the crops came up. And that the people of Israel started worshiping Baal and they started worshiping Ashtaroth so that they would have a, a crop so the harvest would come in. Now again, it's, it's easy for us to read the Old Testament and to see all the different ways the people of Israel adopted the idolatrous practices of the people around them and say, you know what? They were so foolish. I mean, how in the world could they, don't they know that those gods aren't real? Don't they know those gods are false and fake? And how in the world could they worship those false gods? But they had all kinds of reasons why they were worshiping Baal. And they had all kinds of reasons why they thought, if we don't worship Ashtaroth, we're not going to get the crops to come in this year and we're going to starve. And here's the truth. We have all kinds of reasons that we justify in our own minds for why we worship the gods and the idols that we do. There's all kinds of false gods and false idols that we worship as well. As one, one preacher said it this way, you know, there's, there is no real goddess called Aphrodite who's the, the goddess of beauty, but there's plenty of people in America who make sacrifices so that they will become more beautiful. And that's what they're controlled by and that's what they are driven by. You know, there's no, there's no real God called uh, Hermes, who's the God of, of commerce and business success, but there's all kinds of people who make sacrifices to ensure that they are successful in business. There is no God, goddess Hera, who's the goddess of marriage and family life, but there's all kinds of people who make sacrifices to, to make sure that the idol of their family turns out the way that they want them to. They have the, the Christmas card that everybody else envies. And so we worship false gods even though we don't think we do. Becky Pippert in her book, 
out of the salt shaker said it this way, whatever controls us is our God. Those who seek power are controlled by it. Those who seek acceptance are controlled by those they want to please. When we make something an idol, it continually makes us miserable and entraps us. That's exactly what happens with the people of Israel here in Judges. And the result is that God hands them over to plunderers, he says. He hands them over to a foreign power. Now, this is a pattern we see throughout the Bible. That one of the ways God chastises his people, one of the ways that God judges his people is by giving them over to foreign enemies. We're going to see this throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. He's going to give them over to Assyria. He's going to give them over to Babylon. He's going to give them over here to the Philistines. New Testament, he's given them, he gives them over to the Romans. And when Jesus comes on the scene, they're enslaved to the Romans. They're, they're enslaved in their own homeland. And they're not free. So God continually, over and over and over again, is, is basically one of the ways that God judges his people. Like, like one of the things that we, we think about in America, we often say this, is like, hey, if we don't get right with the Lord, then he's going to judge us. And what God says is, no, no, no. Like you not being right with me and doing what you want to do is one of the ways I'm already judging you. I've given you over to what you think you want. I'm letting you do what you think you want to do. And now you're experiencing the consequences of it. And you're kind of figuring out, you know what? It's not all it's cracked up to be. That's what God says. In Deuteronomy 28, God says, listen, if you want to commit idolatry, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drive you into a foreign land where you can serve their gods. And so if you think you want to worship and serve other gods, I'm going to let you do that. And we're going to see how you like it. The Bible says this way, and Paul says in first chapter of the letter that he wrote to the church at Rome, he says, God, God gives people over to a depraved mind. He gives people over to what they think they want. And that is his judgment on them. And that's what God does here in the book of Judges. And he says the same thing to us, okay? You want money more than anything else? You want money even more than a relationship with your family? Okay, you can have it. And let's see if it's on your deathbed what you thought it would be. C.S. Lewis says this way about, uh, C.S. Lewis in his great book um, called The Problem of Pain says about hell, he says that hell is God saying to people, that, that heaven is people saying to God, uh, not my will, but yours. And that hell is God saying to people, uh, not my will, but yours. And you can have what you want. And so God hands them over to what they think they want. And they are oppressed by these foreign powers. And then they, they groan, they cry out to God. God hears their cries. He's moved to pity. And the text tells us he raises up these little saviors called judges. In fact, the word that's used there when he talks about judges who save them is, is the word Joshua. These are little Joshua's, Yeshua's, who the, he raises up to save his people. And we see here in this cycle in the book of Judges are like many exoduses, okay? If you think about the, the big story in the Old Testament is that God's people were slaves to a foreign power in Egypt, and then they cried out to God and God sent Moses to rescue them and then they were released from slavery. That happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges that God uh, has them being oppressed by a foreign power. They cry out to God. He's moved with compassion for them. He raises up a savior like Moses and like Joshua. That savior rescues them and then they go back into the same pattern. Here's one of the things we need to understand about the book of Judges. 
We're going to see all kinds of things in the book of Judges. And one of the things that, that Judges teaches us very specifically that we need to understand about the Old Testament, let me just say this, is that too often in the church, we try to turn the Old Testament into Aesop's fables. And we try to, to like figure out, okay, who are the good guys and let's act like them. And who are the bad guys and let's not act like them. And the book of Judges does not allow you to do that. It, it does not allow you to do that. These are real people. This is like, this is not a melodrama, okay? That's just like, you know, this real easy story. This is a complicated, messy, real life, flawed individuals that God's actually used, like the amazing that God still uses flawed individuals for his purposes, Okay, that's what we see happening throughout the book of Judges. And these guys that we're going to see who are, again, deeply flawed and not perfect, but Hebrews 11 says that they are men of faith, women of faith, that God uses to rescue his people and to put foreign armies to flight and to shut the mouths of lions and all these different things, and they obtain the promises of God. And so we're going to see this is not a moral tale that's saying, hey, do this, don't do this. What he's highlighting over and over and over again in the book of Judges is just how merciful and gracious God is to sinners. And how despite the fact that we repeatedly reject him and repeatedly rebel against him, he is still kind and gracious to us. And so he raises up these judges. Just so you understand, these are not judges like we think of judges who wear a robe and have a gavel and make judicial uh, rulings. These are religious and military leaders that God uses to rescue his people and turn their hearts back to him, okay? And that's what he's gonna do throughout the book. And what we see is the text tells us that the judge is raised up, he rescues the people, and then when he dies, the people go back into the pattern, and it's not just a cycle, it's actually a spiral downwards. He says they get worse and worse and worse. They become more corrupt and more corrupt and more corrupt. And so it's gonna get, it's gonna get worse and worse and worse throughout the book. In fact, by the time we get to the end of the book, at the end of the summer, we're gonna see that the end of Judges tells us that Israel has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They've become like Sodom and Gomorrah. But the good news is no matter how many times they rebel, God still is gracious and God still saves his people. And we see that here. Look in chapter three, verse seven. Chapter three, verse seven gives us the first judge in the book. And this is kind of the perfect paradigm, if you will, that, that goes with the cycle that we just talked about. So look there in verse seven. This is what the Bible says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. 
Now, listen, here's what we need to understand. One of the things that I'll just point out as we think about the introduction to the book of Judges. There are, we're going to see in the book of Judges, 12 judges presented in the book. Okay? Anybody think they know why there's 12? Like, what does the number 12 mean in the Old Testament? What's, what's significant about the number 12? That's the number of tribes that there are in the nation of Israel. Okay? And so we're going to see 12 judges raised up. What is God communicating with these 12 judges? He's, he's saying, look, Israel's completely lost and Israel needs complete salvation. Okay? Every single tribe, there's not anybody exempt. They need total salvation. And what these judges do is ultimately point us to Jesus Christ, the final savior that God brings to his people. Consider Othniel, okay? Othniel is, is, is uh, introduced to us in chapter one. We didn't have time to read that, but there's this uh, incredible love story in chapter one where uh, Caleb, who was one of the, faithful spies that went into the land of Canaan says there's this land that needs to be conquered. There's these enemies in this city that need to be conquered. And whoever does it, I'm going to give him my daughter, Akash, as a wife. And so you have Othniel who goes in and defeats the enemies so that he can win his bride. And this is a, the story of Jesus that Ephesians chapter five tells us is that Jesus came to planet earth to defeat our enemy and to rescue us as his bride and to, and to have a, a personal relationship with us. And we see this with Othniel. In fact, uh, it's funny that uh, one of the rabbis said, Akesh, this woman that Othniel uh, marries, that her name literally in Hebrew means bug. And here's why she was named that. Because they said, here's what the rabbis say, okay? Is they said, any man who looked at her and then looked at his own wife would say, man, compared to Akesh, my wife is a bug, okay? Like compared to her looks, guys, I wouldn't like recommend saying that, but that's what, that's what the rabbis say is they say like she was so pretty that every other woman compared to her was a bug. And so Othniel goes out and he defeats the enemies and he wins Akesh as his bride. And this points us to Jesus Christ. Othniel is a great warrior who throughout, earlier in the Old Testament is said to defeat giants. But here's what we see about Othniel. Othniel's name literally means the lion of God. The lion of God. And he's from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so Othniel is, the, is literally the lion from the tribe of Judah. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Revelation chapter five says Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so Othniel is a little, a small case, lowercase s savior who is empowered by the spirit to defeat the captors and the enemies of Israel and to rescue Israel from their enemies. And he's ultimately pointing us to Jesus Christ who defeats our enemies and who Jesus, who's a better savior than any of the saviors we're gonna see in the book of Judges, who leads us to progressive holiness doesn't leave us in a spiral down into progressive decay. And that's what we see in our, in our salvation is that uh, throughout the book of Judges, one of the, the big problems with the Judges is that they all die. You know, that's, that's the big problem is that as long as they're alive, they rescue their people and they lead their people to follow the Lord. But 
all of them end up dying. And so the Bible tells us Jesus is a, is a better savior because he has the power, Hebrews tells us, of, of an indestructible life. And he's an ever-present help in time of danger. And so we have a better savior who can lead us out of that cycle, uh, that spiral downwards of sin and rebellion and actually make us more like our father and make us holier. So for us to be truly saved from this cycle, we need a savior who doesn't die. And we have that in the lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. There's two things. So just as we wrap up, just two things I want to say in terms of how we apply this to our lives. Uh, The first is this. We need to be intentional about transmitting the faith from one generation to the next. We need to be intentional about transmitting the faith from one generation to the next. That was the problem with the people of Israel there in the Judges. They did not transmit the faith down. As we've said this before, I've, I've, I've told you about this before. In 2 Peter chapter one, Peter writes this letter and he says, listen, the reason why you're not growing in holiness, the reason why you're not growing in maturity, he says, is because you have forgotten that you've been cleansed of your former sins. You say, you've forgotten the work of Jesus and the saving work that he's done on your behalf. It's not about effort. It's not about trying harder. It's that you've not remembered what Jesus has done for you. And so we need to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel and we need to constantly teach and pass the gospel on generation after generation. That's the only way that we're going to see actual transformation and that we're going to see actual progression in holiness. And so what that means for us as a church is we've got to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. That's why we as a church observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a visible sign that God has given to us to remind us. That's what he says. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a visual sign that he has given to us that we need to do often so that we're reminded that he, his body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we could be not only forgiven of our sins, but, but freed from our sin. We need to transmit this on in the way we preach, in the way we teach in our BLGs, in the way we teach in Awanas, in Vacation Bible School, in the way that you read your Bible. You need to remind yourself over and over again in your quiet time of the saving works of God. You need to read your Bible with your children, not just when they're young, but even as they're grown. It's important for families, even as you have teenagers and growing children, to, to carve out time in your week, maybe one dinner a week where you're gonna have a family devotion time where you're gonna read from scripture and you're gonna pray together as a family so that you're transmitting the faith from one generation to the next. You have to have a balance. One of the challenges that that church life has had and that God's people have had is, I'll just say this very bluntly, like not fundamentalism in terms of of the fundamentals of the faith, faith, but fundamentalism in terms of this this rigorous separatist culture that the church has tried to create is that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. When you have a joyless, rule-based only faith that you're transmitting to your children, once they get out of your house and outside of the threats and the punishments that you have over them, they're going to go wild more often than not. And so you've got to be able to balance as parents truth and grace. And what you need to have is a, a joyful, 
a joyful attitude in the way that you're transmitting and, and communicating what it means to be a Christian to your kids. That being a Christian isn't about having no fun, it's about having the right fun. It's about joy in the Lord. As you've got to be able to communicate not just the content of the gospel, but the attitude of the gospel, which is an attitude of grace and mercy and joy to your children. So we have to be able to transmit the faith. The only way we're going to really be different from culture is not by being self-righteous, but it's by being gospel-centered people. And here's the second thing I would say as we close. The cycle that we talk about, the cycle of sin and idolatry and judgment and enslavement and this cycle that the people of Israel are going through over and over again, you can see that in one of two ways. You can see that as a negative thing, which it certainly is in the book of Judges, or you can see it as a positive thing to say, look, God has actually here in Judges chapter two given us the pattern and the prescription for how you can experience revival and the pattern and prescription for how you can experience renewal. And that pattern is genuine repentance. Not, again, as we said, I said this in the last couple of weeks, not saying God take the consequences away from me because I don't like what I'm experiencing, but God help me to hate the sin that led me here in the first place and help me to turn away from it and to turn towards you. And so he actually gives us here a pattern and a prescription for revival. It's repentance. It's crying out to God in, in faith and letting him hear our cries and act on our behalf. It's getting rid of our idols and giving our allegiance only to him. When we sin and when we are broken, we should cry out in genuine humility and contrition, Lord, rescue me from this, not just from the consequences, but from the sin that led to it in the first place and help me to walk in faithfulness to you. And Judges shows us throughout the ugliness of human sin, but also the incredible saving mercy of God. No matter how many times you've messed up, God's incredible patience should lead you to true repentance. Ashley, um, my wife, had a birthday just a couple of days ago, and we watched a movie. And one of the things that, that's happened, my, uh, I don't know that she would say this is a, a good thing, but whenever I watch a movie or read a book or, I mean, just about anything I do, I'm looking for connections of how that movie, that story points to Jesus. And so now we've gotten to the point where like Ashley will make the connection without me even telling her what it is. And so we're watching this movie the other night and the main character sacrifices herself to save a bunch of her friends. And Ashley like made the connection and then she was like, I can't believe I watch movies like this now. You know, th thanks a lot, sweetheart, you know. Uh, but I, so all the time, I'm just, I'm watching these movies and I'm, I'm making these connections. And one of the movies that I, as a dad of two little girls, or not, not uh, two growing girls, one of my, I would say both, it's kind of a two-sided coin. One of my favorite movies and one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen was a movie that came out, it's about over 10 years ago now. It's a movie called Taken, okay? Uh, that Liam Neeson is the main character. And the, the plot of that movie is that there's this young basically just almost a teenager or young college age girl who goes to Paris without her parents and she's abducted by traffickers, okay? And so she's kidnapped by these traffickers 
And her dad is an ex-CIA agent who hunts down the people that have taken her captive and kills them and rescues his daughter, okay? And as a guy who likes action movies, it's, you know, it's pretty awesome, okay? I'm not, I'm not endorsing it, okay? I'm not, you know, if you, get up, if you go watch it and you get upset, don't, don't send me any emails, write them to Liam Neeson, okay? But as a, as, as a guy who likes action movies, I like it. As a dad of daughters, you know, there's, there, it makes me, um, it, you know, it hurts me, but it, but, it, but it has a good ending. But here's what we see in the book of Judges. The reason why we resonate with movies like that, and the reason why those things sell is not just because they're well-written or whatever, because they're action but because something like that is true. That's, that's the story of the gospel, and that's the story of the book of Judges. It's the story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is that God's child, his wayward son Israel, is taken captive into a foreign land because of their sin. In the, in the movie, it's the girl's foolishness that leads her to being taken captive. God's child Israel, his, his son Israel, is sinful, and so he ends up captive in a foreign land, and yet God promises, I'm going to show up, I'm going to destroy your captors, I'm going to free you, and I'm going to bring you back to the land that I have promised you. So we see that over and over again in the book of Judges, and that's honestly the story of Jesus Christ. That's what Judges points us to, and Judges is going to help us combat this sappy, sentimentalized version of Jesus that so many people have. Like so many people think about Jesus as like this hippie guru who's like going around saying, everybody love each other, you know, you know, wears tie-dye and strums a guitar and only wears Birkenstocks on his feet, you know. That's like the, the version of Jesus that so many people have. And it's, he, he's like your, your boyfriend that you see sing love songs to. That's why so many men have, have trouble with church, like, like, I don't want to come to church and sing a song about going into a garden alone with a guy, you know? And the joy I, you know, shared as I tarried there, none other has ever known, you know? I mean, that's just not, guys just don't like singing about that. And that's, that's really not, I'm sorry if you love that song, you know? <laughs> Especially Elvis's version of it, but that's just not, that's not Bible, you know? That's not what the, that's not what the Bible, the, the, the Bible's presenting Jesus as a warrior hero, okay? He's a, he's a warrior. It's, it's a spiritual war. It's not a physical war that he's fighting. It's a spiritual war against enemies like sin and Satan and death who want to keep you on this cycle that you're in. And Jesus comes to, to defeat them, to get you out, to break you out of that cycle that you are in. And so the joy that we feel as we watch movies like Taken, as you see this man go after his daughter who's been kidnapped, who's been abused, and who's been hurt, and, and he's not gonna be stopped, even by bullets ripping through his flesh, to rescue the one that he loves. That's, that's what we see, that, that longing that we have to, to be rescued, that's, that's what we see in the book of Judges, and that's what we see in the story of Jesus Christ. And that longing to be rescued and to, to have someone show up and to to free us and to give us rest. That, that, that's not cinematic drama. At the end of that movie, when Liam Neeson finally shows up 
and rescues his daughter and she's got tears coming down her eyes and she says, Daddy, you came for me? And that's, that's summed up in the gospel of Jesus Christ where Jesus says to us, I've said this to you before, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come for you. That's the story of Judges. And that's the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna go into a time of response to this message. And here's what I wanna challenge you with. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I wanna challenge you to give your life to Jesus. The Bible says, just like we see in the book of Judges, God heard the cries of his people. He heard the groaning of his people. The Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're here tonight, all you have to do is call on Jesus in prayer and say, Jesus, I want you to rescue me from my sins. I want you to forgive me. I want you to come into my life. I want you to give me eternal life. I want you to change me. If you cry out to him in prayer like that, he will answer. He will respond So if that's you, we're gonna have pastors here at the front. We'd love to talk to you about how your life can be changed by Jesus today before you leave. Maybe you need to be obedient by being baptized. You're already a believer, but you need to be baptized. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe this is a time for you to assess and ask the Lord to work in your life to see where is it that I'm compromising with the culture around me? Where is it that I'm putting something or someone in your place some idol, some false god. Again, it could, be, it could be beauty, it could be family, it could be uh, work success, it could be uh, financial comfort, it could be pleasure, it could be any number of things that are, that are in and of themselves good things, but when you put them first in your life, they become things that entrap you and ensnare you. You need to be freed from. So maybe this is a time where you need to call out confession, Lord, help me to put you first in my life and not have anything else first in my life. Whatever it is that the Lord is laying on your heart, this is a time to respond. This is a time to make commitments. This is a time to repent. This is a time to cry out. This is a time to pray. This is a time to destroy idols. This is a time to respond. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would help us to be so overwhelmed and humbled by the good news that you have come to rescue us out of our sin and to defeat all of our enemies and put all of them under your feet, that we are freed to love you with all of our heart, not half-heartedness, but with everything that we have. Father, make that true of us, we ask, and free us from the cycle of falling into the same patterns over and over and over again. Do this by the power of your spirit. And in the work of Jesus Christ, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would stand to your feet, we're gonna sing. If you have a decision to make, you come right now while we sing.